to see you here this morning. We appreciate your presence so much. It is an encouragement, and we are thankful for you. We're happy to be back. Uh, the trip was wonderful. PTP is a, a great time. If you've never been, I'd encourage you to go at least once. I think that would be sufficient for you to go back again. It was a fantastic week. Exhausting, but fantastic. This morning, uh, let's begin by noting that Brother Homer is right. There have been changes and modifications to the sermon. Longer, I don't know yet. Probably addition by subtraction, so we took away and added, so probably just lead level right there at the same point. I don't know. Hebrews 11. We're going to talk about faith this morning, if you have your Bibles. Actually, the title is A Progression of Faith, A Proper Progression of Faith. The importance of faith, you really can't overstate that. As you read the Bible, and if you were trying to count what's important or, or can maybe align it, if you will, faith would have to be near the very top or the most important thing that there is in our relationship with God. Scripture talks about faith at length, uh, from cover to cover, really, it's that significant. John says faith is the victory that overcomes the world. What is that? Our faith is our victory. The Bible spends a lot of time talking about faith and explaining it. The word really means trust. That's what it means. You've been persuaded or convicted by something. Some evidence has been provided and you believe it and are now convicted by it, you trust it, ultimately you will act in harmony with it. The Bible tells us how faith comes. Romans 10 and verse 17 does that. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And that simply means that without God's revelation, we can't have faith in God. We need Him so to reveal Himself to us so we can trust Him. The book of John Sometimes the Bible tells us why books are written. I think the Hebrew writer says at the end of his book that this is a word of exhortation, and he wants them to hear it and take it that way. Well, the book of John comes out and explains why it's written. It's found at the end of the book nearly, chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31, where John says, truly many other things did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. He then says, but these are written that you might believe. And so what John is expressing is the Holy Spirit chose the events recorded in the book of John, specifically these events, so that when read, people would be moved to faith. That's the purpose of the book. In fact, John explains it further in chapter 21 and verse 25, where he says Jesus did many other things which are not written. He says he supposed that if they were all written, the books, the whole world couldn't contain the books. Our Lord did so many things. John says if we wrote them all down, the world couldn't contain the books. But then he says these are written. God wants us to have faith. James tells us in chapter 2 of his book, beginning in verse 14 to the end of that chapter, verse 26, that faith involves action. That it is and it does begin with belief, mental assent. You are convinced in your mind of certain things that are true and they're accurate. However, those things that God reveals moves us to do something that God said. God would 
tell us something, and then he would demand that we trust him and do whatever it is he says. In fact, James in illustration says, if a brother or sister were naked and destitute of daily food, and you said to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. James says, what good is that? You haven't helped them in any way. He says, even so faith, if it is alone, it's dead. It accomplishes nothing. That's James's point, and that's the nature of faith. Jesus would say that if we don't have faith, then the ultimate and sad reality is we will die in our sins, and we cannot be where he is. John 8, 24, if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins, and where I am, you cannot come. Failure to trust will condemn our souls to hell. The Hebrew writer, in verse number six of his book, in fact, he's been writing about faith the entirety of the book, he simply explains it in very simple terms. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Two things are in that verse that must be believed. They break down in this way. One, you have to believe that God is. That is, you have to believe the nature of God. You have to believe his infinite power. God is able. Secondly, you must believe his character. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so you're being asked to trust his nature and his character, his person, and his power. Failure in either regard will make it impossible for you to have a relationship with God. Peter takes it a step further with regards to faith and says, really, faith is the beginning. It is the foundation from which everything else springs. He says in 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 5, and besides all this, giving diligence to add to your faith virtue and knowledge and temperance and all of these things, Peter says faith is where we start and then we choreograph or we add all of these other things to it. He also says it's to grow. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The word faith is used three different ways in the New Testament. The first of one is recorded in Romans chapter 14. That is at least one of the uses. This way is describing our personal convictions. You have faith about some things. You have some strong convictions, but these are subjective things. They're personal beliefs. As you open up Romans chapter 14, read the first five verses there, you hear the Apostle Paul describe this kind of faith. He says, him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. He then gives this scenario of one believeth that he may eat all things, another eateth only herbs. And then he explains, let not him that let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let him not that eateth not judge him that eateth. He asks in verse 4, Who art thou that judges another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth, yea, he shall be holden up, because he is accepted by God. God is able to make him stand. In verse number 5 he explains, One man esteemeth one day above another, another man esteemeth every day alike. He then says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. 
What Paul is describing here is that here's an individual who believes that he can only eat herbs. He's a vegetarian. He does not eat meat. That's what Paul is saying. And he's convicted about that. Here's another man who eats meat, and he enjoys it. He, he just eats every kind of meat there is. And so he is saying, here are these two individuals with these very strong convictions. How are they to interact with each other? He says they are to receive each other, but not for the purpose of convincing the other person that they're wrong. So the person who doesn't eat meat is not supposed to go to the person who does and say, now you know there's 150 health benefits to not eating meat. In fact, you are doing all, he's not supposed to do that. You know the person who eats the meat is not supposed to go to the vegetarian and say, you do know God made meat too. <laughs> and everything is to be received with Thanksgiving and it's delicious. You got any bacon over there? No. No, you don't. Nothing tastes like bacon but bacon. And so, but he says, it's fine that you have these. But don't cast a stumbling block and can try to convince the other. If you were to read the entirety of that chapter, you'll hear Paul saying, actually prefer one another, treat each other with regard, have it to yourself. You and I don't typically have things like this. If you read that chapter, though, you will see he's talking about days. The Jews would have kept holy days. The Gentiles would not. He's talking about meat. The, the Jews had dietary restrictions. The Gentiles did not. Now they're both in the Lord's body. They're brothers in Christ. They bring those things. How are we to treat each other? With regard and care and not casting a stumbling block in front of each other. The Bible calls this faith. It's a strongly held personal conviction. It's subjective. It's yours. And if you want to do it, well, then that's fine. The second way it's used is the system or doctrine of faith brought by Jesus Christ. You will see it contrasted. Sometimes it'll simply be referred to as the faith. You will hear it contrasted with the law of Moses, sometimes spirit and flesh, or the doctrine of Christ, 2 John 9 through 11. Uh, the new covenant, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 comes to mind. The letter and the spirit and all of that kind of arrangement where he's talking about this transition of what Jesus brought. The book of Galatians does it. The book of Romans does it. Uh, uh, throughout the New Testament, Jude will say we are to earnestly contend for the faith. You can see the difference between these two things. Romans 14.5 cannot be applied to Jude 3. Romans 14.5 says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. When it comes to the faith brought by Jesus Christ, we all have to be persuaded by his mind. We cannot be fully persuaded by our own brings us to the third kinds of usage, and that is personal faith. That's Hebrews 11, and that's what the Hebrew writer is talking about with regards to God's people, that every individual must have their own conviction, their own belief based on 
that doctrine of Jesus Christ. In fact, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Scripture set forth the evidence and makes the claim that he is. As early as Matthew 1, after the genealogy to verse 17, verses 18 to 25, that Jesus Christ is God with us. John would say he is God in the flesh. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, John 1, 1 to 3, and verse 14. Later, John would say, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29 and 30. Nathaniel, in that same chapter of John 1, would go to his brother or his, to Philip to Nathaniel and say, We have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, John 1, 45. Nicodemus would say of Jesus, We know you are a teacher come from God, John 3, 1 and 2. To the woman at the well, Jesus said, as she said to him, we know Messiah is coming. Jesus said, I that speak to you am he, John 4, 25, 26. The woman believed it and went and told those in her village. They came out and they said, now we believe this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Some believed it, but then turned away. John chapter 6, verses 60 to 62, they heard the Lord's teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and they thought literally, that's not what he meant. He was talking about his teaching, his word, John 6, 63. But because of that, they stopped believing and walked no longer with him. Jesus turned to the apostles and he said, will you also go away? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe that thou art the Son of God. We believe that. That's what's being talked about, our personal conviction. Now, with that in mind, there is a proper path, a progression for personal faith. And this morning, I'd like for you to consider where you are along the line of this progression. Each stage of this progression is expected. It's designed to work this way. And you and I need not be afraid of the progression, but sometimes it can be unsettling to some. There are four points then to the proper progression of faith. You can see it in the life of Paul. The first of which is inherited faith. That's the first stage, and that is by design and of necessity. Under the Old Covenant, when a male was born, eight days later, he would be circumcised, and as a result of that, he would be made a part of the covenant. Now, at eight days, he would actually know nothing about the covenant. He would know nothing of its meaning or significance. He would be eight days old, and yet he's already a part of the covenant. How did he get that? By inheritance. That was the design. In fact, Paul says that's how he got it. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 4, Paul says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I more. And then he enumerates. He was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, he says, blameless. 
You will hear him repeat that in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they from, the, are from Israel? So am I. Paul was a Jew, and as a result of that, his faith was a matter of birth. That was true of every Jew, and that by design. Now, some members of the church lament this. They discover it, and then they're put off by it as if it could work any other way. It's by design, and it's proper that if you are a New Testament Christian, when you have children, they will inherit your faith. There is nothing in the world wrong with that. That's the way it's intended. But God doesn't want you to stop there. And so we progress. The second kind of faith then, the second stage, if you will, the next progression of that is an indoctrinated faith. We move from inheritance to indoctrination. Paul was then taught his religion. Eight days he couldn't have known it. How did he come to know it? He was taught it. He was indoctrinated into it. Look at Acts chapter 5. You'll be introduced to a man named Gamaliel. Now, the reason for this introduction is that Peter and John are, are being threatened and ultimately going to be beaten. Some of the people want to kill them. And Gamaliel stands up and he speaks. And when they heard, they were cut to the heart. That's verse 33. And they took counsel to slay them. That's what's on the table. We're going to kill them for preaching Jesus. Then stood up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, he commanded to put the apostles forth a little space and then he began to speak. Now, you heard his credentials. A doctor of the law had in reputation. When he spoke, they listened. That man was Paul's teacher. In Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse number 1, as the apostle Paul makes his defense, this is what he says. Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. And when they heard that he spoke in the Hebrew tongue, they kept silence, and he said, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. How did Paul get his, his faith? He was indoctrinated. Gamaliel and others taught him his beliefs. Do you know that's exactly the way God intended it? You've read Deuteronomy chapter 6, haven't you? You've read beginning in verse number 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, with all thy soul. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children. Who's doing the teaching when they rise up? Who's doing the teaching when they walk in the way? Who's doing the teaching when they lay down at night? Who's writing them upon their hands? Who's putting them as frontless before their eyes? Who's writing them on their doorposts? The parents are doing that. For whom? The children. What are they doing? They are indoctrinating their children 
into the faith. Now, again, some people are put off by this, amazingly. They think that's just, I, I would never want to do that to my child. That's foolishness. My parents did it to me, but I'm not going to do it to mine. Well, you do know that God designed and intended, even commanded, that you bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but you say, I'm not going to do that. Well, who is? And if you don't indoctrinate them into the Lord, and if they don't inherit your faith, and then you don't indoctrinate them and teach them your faith, what are they going to learn? And who's going to do the indoctrinating then? Rest assured, your baby won't leave the crib and your lap and reach adulthood without being taught something by someone. See it in action in 2 Timothy chapter 1. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, you know the young man, the young preacher Timothy. This is what Paul said about his faith in 2 Timothy 1 and verse number 5. He says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I also am persuaded that in thee also. Is Paul talking about Timothy's faith? Yes. How did he get it? It was inherited. First it belonged to his grandmother. Then she gave it to her daughter, and then they gave it to him. But it wasn't just inherited, it was indoctrinated. Look at 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. We generally quote 16 and 17. But in verse 15, Paul says about Timothy, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. How did he get it? from a child. They took Deuteronomy 6 seriously. They obeyed Deuteronomy 6, and Timothy, from a child, has been taught it. I beg you, young parents, don't give the world equal time with your children. Don't allow the world to indoctrinate them in the sin and Satan and self because somebody told you not to indoctrinate them in the Christ. If you don't indoctrinate them into the Lord, the world will indoctrinate them into a rejection of the Lord. And then later in life, you'll be crying to the preacher, help me with my child. The, these first two stages are designed, intended, expected, but they're not the end. God intends for us to keep progressing, and that brings us to the third in, in, in third phase of faith, and that would be an investigating faith. We could say an inquiring faith, maybe even a questioning faith. This is maybe for young adults when you get into that area of transition in life, maybe somewhere between high school and, and college and after college, you're, you're in that range. It's usually the result of change in one's life, maybe a new event Maybe you're going off to high school or off to college. Maybe you're moving away to a new city and a new state, or, 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 or maybe you're getting married, or new people, new situations, new surroundings. Maybe you're alone, hearing new things, being exposed, 
to different people and different information. Some of it maybe you're hearing for the first time. Maybe they are causing you to have to give answers that you don't have. And maybe upon hearing new things and without the proper answers, you began to question yourself. I'm not going to say there's anything wrong with that at all. In fact, I'm going to encourage it. The Scripture encourages it. I'm just telling you how it happens sometimes. Other times it is the result of crisis. Sometimes it's not simply change. It's a change of, 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 of difficulty, hardship. Maybe it's loss. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's disaster. Maybe it's, in your mind, unanswered prayers. For Paul, it was meeting Jesus. When you read Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is doing what he believes is right. In fact, that faith into which he was indoctrinated, the, the traditions under which he was reared, he believes them and is convicted, and now he's carrying them out. He's on his way in Acts chapter 9 to hail men and women in the prison and commit them there. Up to this point, he has lived in all good conscience, Acts 23, 1. He has doing what he believes is right. And what he believes is right is to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then in Acts chapter 9, he met Jesus. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Isn't it hard to kick against the goads? Lord, what would you have me to do? Many Christians get here to this questioning, inquiring phase. And it's not that they're there, it's that when they get there, they make mistakes. Let me offer you some of these mistakes and their solutions. Number one, the first mistake that some make is that they are so afraid of questioning that they think they're doing something wrong. And as a result of that, they stop, and they revert back to safety of the first two stages. Well, if I question it, that wouldn't be right. And so I'm going to just stay with my inherited, indoctrinated faith. Such a person should understand that God invites reason. God invites investigation. Isaiah 1.18, God says to his people, come now, let us reason together. God wants to reason. Christianity is open to investigation. It's the most reasonable religion in existence because it comes from the most reasoned mind. Christianity comes from the mind of God. There is no problem with reasoning. By all means, investigate. The second mistake some make is they believe that if I question, that means I don't believe. Well, that's not true. No, you're expected to grow. You're expected to question. You're anticipated. God expects it. Peter says that we are to add to our faith. Faith is not the end. It's the foundation. It is the thing that springs up and undergirds everything else, but we're to add to it. Add to your faith virtue and the virtue knowledge and knowledge temperance and temperance brotherly kindness and all of those things. These things are to grow out of faith. And so you're not wrong at all if you and I get a little nervous. And all, oh, I'm su you're supposed to grow. And so question. That's how you're going to do it. 
In fact, God would be disappointed and displeased if you didn't. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 12 through 14, those people are, are they're, they're condemned for not growing. When for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principle of the oracles of God. Why haven't you progressed? Probably because they never questioned anything. They just stayed with the inheritance, stayed with the indoctrination. Number three, the third mistake people make is they question, but they question the wrong people. When you get to the point of questioning Christianity, why would you go to infidels for answers about belief? In Matthew chapter 2, in verses number 1 to 6, they wanted to know where Jesus would be born. Herod wanted to know, where is he that's born king of the Jews? They went to the chief priests and the scribes, and they asked them. And they said, let's go to the prophets. The prophet said in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2, you have inherited Christianity. Fantastic. You've been indoctrinated into Christianity. That's the way it's supposed to be. And you want to investigate Christianity. So don't turn to an atheist. Don't turn to a denominationalist. Instead, investigate Christianity. By all means, study and research the existence of God. Is there a God? You need to find that out. Study it and research it. Study and research the inspiration of the Scripture. Do we have God's Word? You should study and research that. Study and research the deity of Jesus. Is he the divine son of God? Is he God with us? Study the oneness of the church. Is there only one among all of the thousands? Is there truly only one? Study and research the objectivity of morality. Study and research, is there a heaven or a hell? Christians reach the point of investigation and questions, and then they don't investigate Christianity. They investigate philosophy. They investigate atheism. They investigate evolution, but they don't investigate Christian. Don't, don't investigate denominationalism. Investigate Christian. Investigate what you inherited. Investigate what you were indoctrinated to. Some people get enamored with experts. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ask this guy or this woman because she has a PhD. He has a PhD. They're so smart, they must know. Listen, if degrees impress, and if that's what... Ask a Christian. There are Ph.D. Christians. There are Christians with Ph.D.s. If you're just enamored with scientists, go ask a scientist who's a Christian. There is likely no field of study and investigation where Christians aren't. Chances are good there's a Christian there too. They work for NASA too. You pick the field and chances are good there's a Christian there. But listen, how about asking your parents they aren't crazy. How about asking your elders? The people who saw you and held you on their knees when you were two and three years old. People who visited the hospital to pray for your parents and pray for you. How about asking them or the deacons or the Sunday school teachers or any faithful member, dare I say, a preacher? Don't ask the right questions of the wrong people. Psalm 1 beginning in verse number 1, the psalmist is referred to as a happy man, a blessed man. And he is that for two reasons. First, what he avoids. Second, what he does. The verse says, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. 
What that verse means is this man will not listen to people, instruct him in the ways of life who don't have any regard for the God of heaven. They don't want anything to do with God. Well, that person can't tell me how to live life that God gave me. Blessed is the man that won't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. There is actually a scene where this occurs. You have your Bibles. Look at Acts chapter 16. Here is a situation where a man has a question. It is, I would urge, the most important question in all of the world. In Acts chapter 16, you know the events well. Verse 25 says, Paul and Silas at midnight were singing and praying. They've been put in the prison. They've been beaten. There's an earthquake, verse 26, 27. The keeper falls down. He is going to, to, to harm himself. Verse 20, 29, he called for a light, sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in all thine house. Verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized he and all his house straightway. What's significant? Well, there's a whole lot of things significant. The one I want to talk about is the one we didn't read, and that's verse 28. If you look at verse 28, the Bible says, as Paul stopped the man from harming himself, Paul called, cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm. What's the last phrase say? We are all here. Question, why didn't he ask us all? We're all here. You can ask anybody anything. No. Verse 29, he fell down at Paul's feet. He asked him, why him? Don't go ask the right question of the wrong people. This man asked Paul, and you know what? Paul had the answer to what he needed to do to be saved. It's very likely nobody else in that prison did. He must have known that. Scripture is open for investigation. By all means, investigate. If you read the New Testament, you'll hear Jesus inviting men. Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. You know who you're going to find in the Old Testament? Jesus said, search it and see, you'll find me there. What he said. Now, they're in the very process of rejecting him, and he says, you got the Scriptures, go search them and you'll find me there. The Bereans are commended. Why? Because they receive the Word with all readiness of mind and search the Scriptures. How often? Daily. For what purpose? To see if these things were so. God is open for investigation. By all means, if you reach the stage of investigation, thank God. He wants you there. Paul, in writing 1 Corinthians 15, said, Listen, we are preaching to you the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was done according to the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to over 500 brethren at once, many of which are alive right now. Go knock on the door and ask them. We are witnesses of these things. Where did we preach Jesus rose from the dead? In the very city they killed him. To whom did we preach it? Some of the very people who had a hand in shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and they knew it. And what did we tell them? We are eyewitness of these things. And when they threatened us, we kept preaching. When they beat us, we kept preaching. Why? It was true. And when they killed us, we kept preaching. Because it's true. The tomb was empty. And we were never going to stop. By all means, investigate. 
You'll do yourself a grave disservice if you don't, and you can never reach the fourth point if you don't. Is God real? Go check and find out. Listen to what the other options are. Is Jesus the Savior of the world? Is he the judge of the world? Is the gospel God's power to save? Does it matter how I live morally and spiritually? Does it matter how I worship? Did Christ build only one church? Does it matter how I'm saved? Does it matter if I'm saved? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is everyone who does not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ going to be lost eternally? Now, let me add this note. As you investigate Please be willing to set forth your evidence that you find in your investigation and allow it to also be investigated. I'm just amazed that Christians will reach the point of inquiry and then investigate Christianity, come up with their questions, offer their evidence, and then you begin to investigate their investigation, and they suddenly say, well, you're being difficult. If you got something better than Christianity, I love to investigate it. You got somebody better than Jesus, I'd love to hear about him so I can investigate it. It's unreasonable to investigate and question Christianity and not allow your own position to then be investigated. If you don't inquire, you might be stuck with an inherited faith or an indoctrinated faith. You have to inquire. You have to investigate. Only then can you move to the proper development of faith, and that is, fourthly, an individual-owned faith. Paul reached this point after meeting Christ. You can read it in Acts chapter 9. His life changes. After the scales fell from his eyes, immediately Verse number 22, immediately he was baptized, verse 18. And verse 22 says, straightway he preached Christ. He changed his allegiance. He had done many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and now all he did was preach Jesus. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, as it turns out, you can almost hear him. He uses the language of the Old Testament, but now he makes the application to the New Testament. Listen to him describe it in Philippians chapter 3. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is, is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. Beware of dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the circumcision. And then he says, for we, he's now talking about New Testament Christians. He says, we are the true circumcision. He said, we are the ones. We worship God in spirit and truth. We're the ones who bring the glory of Christ Jesus. We actually put now no confidence in the flesh. This is a 180 degree difference from where Paul was. It's his faith now. It was the faith of his father brought up under Gamaliel, but now it's his. And for it, he will go teach it to anybody who will hear it. He will he, he, he will suffer persecution for it. 2 Timothy 2.10, when he's trying to stir up Timothy, he says, therefore I attain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. He's convicted personally. He says in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I believed. 
and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He says in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19, I will become all things to all men that I might by all means save some, even if that means giving up personal liberty sometimes. If meat offend my brother, I will not eat meat while the world stands. That's Paul's position. It's his. He owns it. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's his own faith now. As a result of that, he lived and he died in it, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. To get where Paul was, you must do what Paul did. You must investigate. Sometimes Christians don't know why they're struggling the way that they are. Do you feel like you're going through the motions? You come, but you feel unfulfilled and unsatisfied but you keep coming? Does it appear that other people are experiencing something you're not? Do you feel disconnected, discouraged? Sometimes you just don't know. Hard to find motivation. Sometimes attending is a chore. Tried to study, but uh, I don't know what, and I don't do it for very long. You just have an overall sense of, of wandering. It's very likely that's what's happening to you is you may be an adult person living a child's faith. The solution to that is investigate, investigate, and investigate until it becomes your own. Investigate with a pure heart. Investigate with an honest heart. Investigate with an open heart. Investigate with a thorough heart. Investigate with a diligent heart so you can own your faith, so you can be convicted and have confidence and certainty. Where are you in your faith? The progression is by design. Parents, those of you who have young children, please, I beg of you, don't rob your children of the first two stages. Don't feel bad about your child's inherited faith. Don't grieve your child's indoctrinated faith. Children can't even choose the shoes they wear the clothes they wear, the food they eat, the rooms they have, the television shows they watch, and then some parent is going to say, but I'm going to let them choose their faith. No. Indoctrinate your child in the faith. God never apologizes for Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 10. He never apologizes for telling parents, when they wake up, tell them about me. When you walk through the day, tell them about me. When they come home at night and you get ready to lay them down, tell them some more about me. Write about me in the house. Put me outside on the doorpost, on the front gate. Put me out there. Write me on your hand and put me in front of your eyes. Let them see me and hear me from you every day, all day. Indoctrinate them. God doesn't make any apologies for that. I don't know why you would. If you don't indoctrinate them in God, somebody will indoctrinate them into Satan. But young people, your parents, if they do that right, they've done for you all they actually can do. People will always lament, I suppose, the state of their children. And I suppose it's because you'll always be their children, even at 55. But the truth is, when you get to the point of adulthood, even young adulthood, 
it becomes your responsibility to take what you inherited, to take what you were indoctrinated into, and to investigate it yourself. It shows maturity and leads to ownership. Inheritance and indoctrinating is your parents' responsibility. Investigation is your responsibility. And the problem is they can't do that for you anymore. God expects and anticipates that when it's done properly, it will lead to the right conclusion. And so he encourages it. The Bereans are a model. They receive the word with all readiness of mind. They search the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. That's the model. Investigation led me out of the Marine Corps and into the school of preaching because I had to know if what I had inherited and indoctrinated into was correct. I had to know if it were so. Two years of intensive training. Am I telling you to go to the Memphis School of Preaching? Yes. No, I'm not. <laughs> it would help. It would bless your life, but I'm not. What I am telling you, though, is you have to investigate. Investigation will lead you to your own owned faith. It will be a faith based on knowledge, Hebrews 11, 1 to 3. A faith based on truth, John 17, 17. A faith that you're able to defend, 1 Peter 3, 15. A faith that you can teach to others, 2 Timothy 2, 2. A faith that you can live for your life, Revelation 2, 10. And a faith to take you to heaven, 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. God wants you in heaven. And faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Hebrews chapter 11 is a wonderful example of faith, and all of those people in that chapter had it. But one of my favorite verses in Hebrews 11 is verse 13. Where the Bible says, these all died in faith. That really is the only way to die. You're not a Christian this morning, become one. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's where it begins. It begins with conviction, facts, things that are true. He is the Son of God. You need to believe that. Jesus said, if you don't, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. That belief needs to move you to repentance. It's that which changes your mind, causes you, because of this new information, to reconsider your ways, to reevaluate your life, and to repent and to make changes in your mind that leads to changes in your life based on that belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I changed my mind. I changed my heart. I changed the direction of my life. Jesus said, if you don't, you'll perish. Confess the name of Jesus. That's really what it's all about. You ultimately reach the point where you say, now that I'm convicted, I don't mind telling you, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Read John 9 and see the struggle with that. And Jesus said, if you don't reach this point, then you can't be saved. But that just leads you to the point where now you're ready to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that Jesus can wash you in his blood, forgive your past sins, and make you new. And once you're there, friends, own your faith and never turn back. If you've never done that, you need to. If you are a Christian, would you examine your life this morning? Will you see where you are in your faith? And if you haven't reached the place of ownership, would you seek help? 
um, elders here who would help you, preachers here who would help you, this wonderful body of people, the saints who meet here would be glad to sit and help you in any way that we can to help you with your investigation to make your faith your own. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing. Yeah.